Chapter Four of the Boy Scout and Other Stories for Boys by Richard Harding Davis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four: Blood Will Tell, Part One. David Green was an employee of the Burdett Automatic Punch Company. The manufacturing plant of the company was at Bridgeport, but in the New York offices there were working samples of all the punches, from the little nickel-plated hand-punch with which conductors squeezed holes in railroad tickets, to the big punch that could bite into an iron plate as easily as into a piece of pie. David's duty was to explain these different punches, and accordingly, when Burdett Sr. or one of the sons turned a customer over to David, he spoke of him as a salesman. But David called himself a demonstrator. For a short time he even succeeded in persuading the other salesmen to speak of themselves as demonstrators, but the shipping clerks and bookkeepers laughed them out of it. They could not laugh David out of it. This was so partly because he had no sense of humor, and partly because he had a great-great-grandfather. Among the salesmen on Lower Broadway, to possess a great-great-grandfather is unusual. Even a great-grandfather is a rarity, and either is considered superfluous. But to David the possession of a great-great-grandfather was a precious and open delight. He had possessed him only for a short time. Undoubtedly he always had existed, but it was not until David's sister Anne married a doctor in Bordentown, New Jersey, and became socially ambitious, that David emerged as a son of Washington. It was sister Anne, anxious to get in as a daughter, and wear a distaff pin in her shirt-waist, who discovered the revolutionary ancestor she unearthed him, or rather ran him to earth, in the graveyard of the Presbyterian Church at Bordentown. He was no less a person than General Hiram Green, and he had fought with Washington at Trenton and at Princeton. Of this there was no doubt, that later, on moving to New York, his descendants became peace-loving salesmen did not affect his record. To enter a society founded on heredity, the important thing is first to catch your ancestor, and having made sure of him, David entered the society of the sons of Washington with flying colors. He was not unlike the man who had been speaking prose for forty years without knowing it. He was not unlike the other man who woke to find himself famous. He had gone to bed a timid, near-sighted, underpaid salesman, without a relative in the world, except a married sister in Bordentown, and he awoke to find he was a direct descendant of neck-or-nothing green, a revolutionary hero, a friend of Washington, a man whose portrait hung in the State House at Trenton. David's life had lacked color. The day he carried his certificate of membership to the big jewelry store uptown and purchased two rosettes, one for each of his two coats, was the proudest of his life. The other men in the Broadway office took a different view. As Wyckoff, one of Burdett's flying squadron of traveling salesmen, said, 
All grandfathers look alike to me, whether they're great or great-great-great. Each one is as dead as the other. I'd rather have a live cousin who could loan me a five, or slip me a drink. What did your great-great-dad ever do for you? Well, for one thing, said David stiffly, he fought in the War of the Revolution. He saved us from the shackles of monarchical England. He made it possible for me and you to enjoy the liberties of a free republic. Don't try to tell me your grandfather did all that, protested Wyckoff, because I know better. There were a lot of others helped. I read about it in a book. I am not grudging glory to others, returned David. I am only saying I am proud that I am a descendant of a revolutionist. Wyckoff dived into his inner pocket and produced a leather photograph frame that folded like a concertina. "'I don't want to be a descendant,' he said. "'I'd rather be an ancestor. Look at those.' Proudly he exhibited photographs of Mrs. Wyckoff with the baby and of three other little Wyckoffs. David looked with envy at the children. "'When I'm married,' he stammered, and at the words he blushed, I hope to be an ancestor. If you're thinking of getting married, said Wyckoff, you'd better hope for a raise in salary. The other clerks were as unsympathetic as Wyckoff. At first, when David showed them his parchment certificate and his silver gilt insignia, with on one side a portrait of Washington and on the other a continental soldier, they admitted it was dead swell. They even envied him, not the grandfather, but the fact that owing to that distinguished relative David was constantly receiving beautifully engraved invitations to attend the monthly meetings of the society, to subscribe to a fund to erect monuments on battlefields to mark neglected graves, to join in joyous excursions to the tomb of Washington or of John Paul Jones to inspect West Point, Annapolis, and Bunker Hill, to be among those present at the annual banquet at Delmonico's. In order that, when he opened these letters, he might have an audience, he had given the society his office address. In these communications he was always addressed as Dear Compatriot, and never did the words fail to give him a thrill. They seemed to lift him out of Burdett's sales-rooms and Broadway, and place him next to things uncommercial, untainted, high, and noble. He did not quite know what an aristocrat was, but he believed being a compatriot made him an aristocrat. When customers were rude, when Mr. John or Mr. Robert was overbearing, this idea enabled David to rise above their ill-temper and he would smile and say to himself, If they knew the meaning of the blue rosette in my buttonhole, how differently they would treat me! How easily with a word could I crush them! But few of the customers recognized the significance of the button. They thought it meant that David belonged to the Y.M.C.A., or was a teetotaler. David, with his gentle manners and pale ascetic face, was liable to give that impression. When Wyckoff mentioned marriage, the reason David blushed was because, although no one in the office suspected it, he wished to marry the person in whom the office took the greatest pride. 
This was Miss Emily Anthony, one of Burdett and Son's youngest, most efficient, and prettiest stenographers. And although David did not cut as dashing a figure as did some of the firm's traveling men, Miss Anthony had found something in him so greatly to admire that she had, out of office hours, accepted his devotion, his theatre tickets, and an engagement ring. Indeed, so far had matters progressed that it had been almost decided when in a few months they would go upon their vacations, they also would go upon their honeymoon. And then a cloud had come between them, and from a quarter from which David had expected only sunshine. The trouble befell when David discovered he had a great-great-grandfather. With that fact itself Miss Anthony was almost as pleased as was David himself. But while he was content to bask in another's glory, Miss Anthony saw in his inheritance only an incentive to achieve glory for himself. From a hard-working salesman she had asked but little, but from a descendant of a national hero she expected other things. She was a determined young person, and for David she was an ambitious young person she found she was dissatisfied. She found she was disappointed. The great-great-grandfather had opened up a new horizon, had in a way raised the standard. She was as fond of David as always, but his tale of past wars and battles, his accounts of present banquets at which he sat shoulder to shoulder with men of whom even Burdett and Son spoke with awe, touched her imagination. You shouldn't be content to just wear a button, she urged. If you're a son of Washington, you ought to act like one. I know I'm not worthy of you, David sighed. I don't mean that, and you know I don't, Emily replied indignantly. It has nothing to do with me. I want you to be worthy of yourself, of your grandpa Hiram. But how, complained David. What chance has a twenty-five-dollar-a-week clerk—it was a year before the Spanish-American War, while the patriots of Cuba were fighting the mother country for their independence—if I were a son of the Revolution, said Emily, I'd go to Cuba and help free it. Don't talk nonsense, cried David. If I did that, I'd lose my job, and we'd never be able to marry. Besides, what's Cuba done for me? All I know about Cuba is I once smoked a Cuban cigar, and it made me ill. Did Lafayette talk like that? demanded Emily. Did he ask what have the American rebels ever done for me? If I were in Lafayette's class, sighed David, I wouldn't be selling automatic punches. There's your trouble, declared Emily. You lack self-confidence. You're too humble. You've got fighting blood, and you ought to keep saying to yourself, blood will tell, and the first thing you know, it will tell. You might begin by going into politics in your ward, or you could join the militia. That takes only one night a week, and then, if we did go to war with Spain, you'd get a commission and come back a captain. Emily's eyes were beautiful with delight but the sight gave David no pleasure. In genuine distress 
he shook his head. Emily, he said, you're going to be awfully disappointed in me. Emily's eyes closed as though they shied at some mental picture. But when she opened them they were bright, and her smile was kind and eager. No, I'm not, she protested. Only I want a husband with a career, and one who'll tell me to keep quiet when I try to run it for him. I've often wished you would, said David. Would what? Run your career for you? No, keep quiet. Only it didn't seem polite to tell you so. Maybe I'd like you better, said Emily, if you weren't so darned polite. A week later, early in the spring of 1897, the unexpected happened, and David was promoted into the flying squadron. He now was a traveling salesman, with a rise in salary and a commission on orders. It was a step forward, but as going on the road meant absence from Emily, David was not elated. Nor did it satisfy Emily. It was not money she wanted. Her ambition for David could not be silenced with a raise in wages. She did not say this, but David knew that in him she still found something lacking, and when they said good-bye they both were ill at ease and completely unhappy. Formerly, each day when Emily, in passing David in the office, said good morning, she used to add the number of the days that still separated them from the vacation which also was to be their honeymoon. But for the last month she had stopped counting the days, at least she did not count them aloud. David did not ask her why this was so, he did not dare, and sooner than learn the truth that she had decided not to marry him, or that she was even considering not marrying him, he asked no questions but in ignorance of her present feelings set forth on his travels. Absence from Emily hurt just as much as he had feared it would. He missed her, needed her, longed for her. In numerous letters he told her so, but owing to the frequency with which he moved, her letters never caught up with him. It was almost a relief. He did not care to think of what they might tell him. The route assigned David took him through the south and kept him close to the Atlantic seaboard. In obtaining orders he was not unsuccessful, and at the end of the first month received from the firm a telegram of congratulation. This was of importance chiefly because it might please Emily. But he knew that in her eyes the great-great-grandson of Hiram Green could not rest content with a telegram from Burdett and Sons. A year before she would have considered it a high honor, a cause for celebration. Now he could see her press her pretty lips together and shake her pretty head. It was not enough. But how could he accomplish more? He began to hate his great-great-grandfather. He began to wish Hiram Green had lived and died a bachelor. And then Dame Fortune took David in hand, and toyed with him, and spanked him, and pelted and petted him, until finally she made him her favorite son. Dame Fortune went about this work in an abrupt and arbitrary manner. On the night of the 1st of March, 1897, 
two trains were scheduled to leave the Union Station at Jacksonville at exactly the same minute, and they left exactly on time. As never before in the history of any Southern Railroad has this miracle occurred, it shows that when Dame Fortune gets on the job she is omnipotent. She placed David on the train to Miami as the train he wanted drew out for Tampa, and an hour later, when the conductor looked at David's ticket, he pulled the bell-cord and dumped David over the side into the heart of a pine forest. If he walked back along the track for one mile, the conductor reassured him, he would find a flag station where at midnight he could flag a train going north. In an hour it would deliver him safely in Jacksonville. There was a moon, but for the greater part of the time it was hidden by fitful, hurrying clouds, and as David stumbled forward, at one moment he would see the rails like streaks of silver, and the next would be encompassed in a complete and bewildering darkness. He made his way from tie to tie only by feeling with his foot. After an hour he came to a shed. Whether it was or was not the flag-station that the conductor had in mind, he did not know and he never did know. He was too tired, too hot, and too disgusted to proceed, and dropping his suitcase he sat down under the open roof of the shed, prepared to wait either for the train or daylight. So far as he could see, on every side of him, stretched a swamp, silent, dismal, interminable. From its black water rose dead trees, naked of bark, and hung with streamers of funereal moss. There was not a sound or sign of human habitation. The silence was the silence of the ocean at night. David remembered the berth reserved for him on the train to Tampa, and of the loathing with which he had considered placing himself between its sheets. But now how gladly would he welcome it! For in the sleeping-car, ill-smelling, close and stuffy, he at least would have been surrounded by fellow-sufferers of his own species. Here his companions were owls, water-snakes, and sleeping buzzards. I am alone, he told himself on a railroad embankment entirely surrounded by alligators. And then he found he was not alone. In the darkness, illuminated by a match, not a hundred yards from him, there flashed suddenly the face of a man. Then the match went out and the face with it. David noted that it had appeared at some height above the level of the swamp, at an elevation higher even than that of the embankment. It was as though the man had been sitting on the limb of a tree. David crossed the tracks and found that on the side of the embankment opposite the shed there was solid ground and what once had been a wharf. He advanced over this cautiously, and as he did so the clouds disappeared and in the full light of the moon he saw a bayou broadening into a river, and made fast to the decayed and rotting wharf an ocean-going tug. It was from her deck that the man, in lighting his pipe, had shown his face. At the thought of a warm engine-room and the company of his fellow-creatures, David's heart leaped with pleasure. He advanced quickly. 
and then something in the appearance of the tug, something mysterious, secretive, threatening, caused him to halt. No lights showed from her engine room, cabin, or pilot house. Her decks were empty. But as was evidenced by the black smoke that rose from her funnel, she was awake, and awake to some purpose. David stood uncertainly, questioning whether to make his presence known or return to the loneliness of the shed. The question was decided for him. He had not considered that standing in the moonlight he was a conspicuous figure. The planks of the wharf creaked, and a man came toward him. As one who means to attack, or who fears attack, he approached warily. He wore high boots, riding breeches, and a sombrero. He was a little man, but his movements were alert and active. To David he seemed unnecessarily excited. He thrust himself close against David. "'Who the devil are you?' demanded the man from the tug. "'How'd you get here?' "'I walked,' said David. "'Walked?' the man snorted incredulously. "'I took the wrong train,' explained David pleasantly. "'They put me off about a mile below here. I walked back to this flag station. I'm going to wait here for the next train north.' The little man laughed mockingly. "'Oh, no, you're not,' he said. "'If you walked here, you can just walk away again.' With a sweep of his arm, he made a vigorous and peremptory gesture. "'You walk,' he commanded. "'I'll do just as I please about that,' said David. As though to bring assistance, the little man started hastily toward the tug. "'I'll find someone who'll make you walk,' he called. "'You wait, that's all. You wait.' David decided not to wait. It was possible the wharf was private property, and he had been trespassing. In any case, at the flag station the right of all men were equal, and if he were in for a fight he judged it best to choose his own battleground. He recrossed the tracks and sat down on his suitcase in a dark corner of the shed. Himself hidden in the shadows, he could see in the moonlight the approach of any other person. "'They're river pirates,' said David to himself, or smugglers. They're certainly up to some mischief. Or why should they object to the presence of a perfectly harmless stranger? Partly with cold, partly with nervousness, David shivered. "'I wish that train would come,' he sighed and instantly, as though in answer to his wish, from only a short distance down the track, he heard the rumble and creak of approaching cars. In a flash David planned his course of action. The thought of spending the night in a swamp infested by alligators and smugglers had become intolerable. He must escape, and he must escape by the train now approaching. To that end the train must be stopped. His plan was simple. The train was moving very, very slowly, and though he had no lantern to wave, in order to bring it to a halt he need only stand on the track exposed to the glare of the headlight and wave his arms. David sprang between the rails and gesticulated wildly. But in amazement his arms fell to his sides. 
for the train, now only a hundred yards distant and creeping toward him at a snail's pace, carried no headlight. And though in the moonlight David was plainly visible, it blew no whistle, tolled no bell. Even the passenger coaches in the rear of the sightless engine were wrapped in darkness. It was a ghost of a train, a flying Dutchman of a train, a nightmare of a train. It was as unreal as the black swamp, as the moss on the dead trees, as the ghostly tugboat tied to the rotting wharf. "'Is the place haunted?' exclaimed David. He was answered by the grinding of brakes, and by the train coming to a sharp halt. And instantly, from every side, men fell from it to the ground, and the silence of the night was broken by a confusion of calls, and eager greeting, and questions, and sharp words of command. So fascinated was David in the stealthy arrival of the train, and in her mysterious passengers, that until they confronted him he did not note the equally stealthy approach of three men. Of these, one was the little man from the tug. With him was a fat, red-faced Irish-American. He wore no coat, and his shirt-sleeves were drawn away from his hands by garters of pink elastic. His derby hat was balanced behind his ears. Upon his right hand flashed an enormous diamond. He looked as though but at that moment he had stopped sliding glasses across a bowery bar. The third man carried the outward marks of a sailor. David believed he was the tallest man he had ever beheld, but equally remarkable with his height was his beard and hair, which were of a fierce brick-dust red. Even in the mild moonlight it flamed like a torch. "'What's your business?' demanded the man with the flamboyant hair. "'I came here,' began David, "'to wait for a train.' The tall man bellowed with indignant rage. "'Yes,' he shouted, "'this is the sort of place anyone would pick out to wait for a train.' In front of David's nose he shook a fist as large as a catcher's glove. "'Don't you lie to me,' he bullied. Do you know who I am? Do you know who you're up against? I'm—' The barkeeper person interrupted. Never mind who you are, he said. We know that. Find out who he is. David turned appealingly to the barkeeper. Do you suppose I'd come here on purpose, he protested? I'm, I'm a traveling man. You won't travel any tonight, mocked the red-haired one. You've seen what you came to see, and all you want now is to get to a Western Union wire. Well, you don't do it. You don't leave here tonight. As though he thought he had been neglected, the little man in riding boots pushed forward importantly. Tie him to a tree, he suggested. Better take him on board, said the barkeeper, and send him back by the pilot. When we're once at sea, he can't hurt us any. "'What makes you think I want to hurt you?' demanded David. "'Who do you think I am?' "'We know who you are,' shouted the fiery-headed one. "'You're a blankety-blank spy. "'You're a government spy or a Spanish spy. "'And whichever you are, you don't get away to-night.' "'David had not the faintest idea what the man meant, 
but he knew his self-respect was being ill-treated, and his self-respect rebelled. "'You have made a very serious mistake,' he said, "'and whether you like it or not, I am leaving here to-night, and you can go to the devil.'" End of chapter 4, part 1